Hello, Tour Guide Tell All fans. Thanks for coming back for another uh, episode. This is uh, February, and we're excited to be back in your ear holes. We are um, bringing you another episode for Black History Month. And uh, as we say a lot, Black history is American history, and American history is Black history. And we are very excited uh, to talk about two really interesting people uh, in this uh, month. We talked about Mary Church Terrell last time, uh, and we're going to talk about somebody super interesting this time. So uh, before we get into that, though, uh, let's introduce ourselves. I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are... The The Rebecca's. Nailed it. Love it so much. Uh, we are back in your ear holes. We, it is February. It is cold. Uh, and we are happy that you're here with us. Uh, we are getting ready for our spring season. So if your plans are going to take you to Washington, D.C. at some point in the next few months, check us out. We are great on the pod, but we're even greater and cuter in person. Uh, and <clears throat> we are having all kinds of fun tours. We're giving winter tours now. And our spring season is booking up, so come on our tours. I also want to give a shout out to our patrons. Our patrons are amazing, and you're the wind beneath our wings. We say that all the time, and we're so grateful for everyone's support. Our patron episode this month is going to be about a woman named Belle DaCosta Green, uh, and she's very intriguing and very special, and it was a patron request that we talk about her. Uh, Our patron last month in January, we talked about uh, Candon's book. She's writing literally a book as we speak uh, about LeDroit Park and uh, we were so we got all kinds of fun and exciting stuff happening in our patron um, feed so if you're not a patron this is a great time we're gonna have an exciting spring and so we would like to clue, uh, clue you into our patron episode so thanks to our patrons and this Black History Month, we did a whole pod a while back about uh, Black History Month, about the father of Black History Month, who's a man named Carter Woodson. He invented Black History Month. He lived in Washington. He has a monument in the city, and as well, his house is also uh, a historic monument. It's not open for COVID, but when it is not COVID, it is open. Uh, and uh, he picked February. So there's always a joke going around that we, the African-Americans get the shortest month for Black History Month. That is actually by Carter Woodson's own design. Uh, it was originally Black History Week. And he picked February because both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass have their birthdays in uh, February. So that is why February is Black History Month. Uh, so you can tell your friends that you heard it here on Tour Guide Tell All. But Becca, who are we going to talk about today? Today, we're talking about a really pivotal figure, um, not just in the civil rights movement, but really a pivotal figure of the 20th century, a man who um, his legacy, I think, has really been re-examined and re kind of um, looked at and rediscovered over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and that's Bayard Rustin. Um, we're going to really talk about the trajectory of his life. Uh, we're going to talk about where he intersects with sort of some important movements of the, the mid 20th century. Uh, we're going to talk about the incredibly important role he played in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and really talk about sort of why um, 
he's not a figure who we have talked about as much uh, and why it's just sort of in the last few years that we're starting to see people really grappled, uh, grapple uh, with Bayard Rustin. I will say too, just um, as a caveat, and this is true of everybody we talk about on this podcast, it's true of everybody in history, it's true of everyone. Um, these people are people, they're humans, they're complex. It's really easy to sort of take someone and go, I want to cherry pick the parts of their life or their experience that fits my preconceived notion about what they should be or what they should represent. And Bayard Rustin is a great example of someone who does incredible work, uh, somebody who um, has a multitude of areas of activism and interest. And yet there are elements of his legacy that are complicated and and um, tricky. And I like that about him. And I like that uh, as a country and certainly as a discipline, um, people are starting to really feel more comfortable with those, those sort of complexities because um, these are our people. Um, so Bayard Rustin, um, and at the end, we'll talk about some great resources too. By no means are we the experts. We're here um, to share with you some some interesting, compelling elements of his life. But um, I definitely encourage you to check out the show notes. Um, we put together a pretty good list of further resources on Rustin. So to start with kind of the basics, he's born 1912, so really uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century, Pennsylvania, very large family. He's raised by his maternal grandparents. Uh, he will come to believe that his sister was actually his biological mother. So we're talking about a very large family. We're talking about some complex family dynamics um, for the early part of the 20th century. Um, if his uh, sister truly was his biological mother, it makes perfect sense that he'd be raised by his maternal grandmother. That was not an uncommon sort of situation. Uh, his grandmother was a very active member in the NAACP. So he is raised in a very politically engaged environment. Uh, this is a young man who from birth is going to be surrounded by a lot of the um, sort of cultural discussion about civil rights, about the role of African-Americans in the 20th century. Um, and he's going to regularly, as a child, meet important movers and shakers, including people like W.E.B. Du Bois um, and others. So he grows up like surrounded by this as a young man. Um, he's raised as a Quaker. His family um, are Quakers, although his grandmother is Methodist, uh, which puts him sort of right in the uh, the center of where a lot of these civil rights activists are in terms of religion. He becomes kind of this hybrid Quaker and socialist, and socialism is going to be a really important part of Rustin's life. And I do think that Quaker perspective, though, that he gets as a young man really is going to influence uh, his views on a lot of things, particularly his deeply rooted pacifism. Um, yes. Rustin, from, a, from the point of being a young man his entire life, is a truly dedicated pacifist. And you can imagine being a pacifist during the first and second world wars, being a pacifist during Vietnam, these are not always popular positions to hold, um, even within the other movements that he's a part of. But that just comes, I think, from, uh, from the way that he's raised and the way that he's brought up. He attends a place that we mentioned uh, in our podcast last last uh, episode, Wilberforce College, um, which is a historically black college in Ohio. Um, Many, many, many important uh, civil rights um, activists and members of these movements are going to come out of these HBCUs. Uh, Wilberforce is one of them. Um, he's going to get expelled, though, and he gets expelled mm -hmm. for organizing a strike. Nice. And let's just say this is kind of going to be a theme in Rustin's life. Um, we, uh, I think, often uh, in sort of the pop culture parlance of the last couple of years, talk about getting into good trouble, uh, sort of inspired by John Lewis. Um, Rustin gets into a lot of good trouble in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. He's going to find himself often expelled, forced out, pushed out because he's doing what he believes is right. Um, in this case, organizing a strike. Um, and this is going to be kind of a lifelong journey for him where he 
he's yes. just going to cause trouble, uh, often on the side of right. Uh, this is going to force him to move. He's going to move to um, New York. He moves to Harlem in 1937. So this is right at the height of the Great Depression. And this is really where he just begins a career as an activist. He's going to continue to study. He'll study at City College while he's in Harlem. But really, um, when he leaves Ohio and comes to New York, uh, his entire sort of focus shifts into activism. He's going to work in a lot of different areas in this time. Um, he's going to work on efforts to help defend the Scottsboro Boys. But one little tidbit I kind of love about Rustin is when he moves to New York, he, in addition to sort of um, connecting with a lot of activist groups and connecting with a lot of sort of radicals and progressives. He's also connecting with artists. He's connecting with musicians. Rustin himself has a really tremendous voice. And so he's going to make a little bit of a side gig as a singer. He's going to perform frequently at Cafe Society in Greenwich Village. So this is a man who is very dedicated to um, his career and work as an activist, but also sees sort of the power of art and, you know, art, music and connection uh, through that realm. So it's sort of like out protesting and organizing during the day. And at night, he's hobnobbing with sort of these beatniks and, um, you know, kind of early hipsters at Cafe Society. That must have been so interesting to be to all the people that he must have met in this era in New York, like Harlem in the 30s and then the, into the 40s. He actually has a um, uh, gets a scholarship to go to Wilberforce because of his voice. So he's um, a, an accomplished singer. He's there are recordings uh, that are going to be produced later on in his life where he kind of because he's got a name, he'll sing spiritual. So he's got a his. Uh, finger in a lot of the different sort of things that are kind of going on in this area. And he gets sort of swept up in socialist politics. Uh, he, he dabbles with the Communist Party, um, which are going to support civil rights efforts to an extent. Uh, but as World War II begins, he's going to really get involved with the socialists, which are very different. We're not going to go into why, but they are quite different. Um, and I wanted to situate, so one of the mentors that he's going to have, and this is somebody who is a famous name uh, in and of himself, which is A. Philip Randolph. Uh, a. Philip Randolph is going to work with Dr. King and Rustin to organize the March on Washington. And I kind of wanted to situate Rustin in this sort of continuum. We talked last time about Mary Church Terrell. Her and Ida B. Wells are born in the 1860s, so in the midst of the Civil, uh, the Civil War. A. Philip Randolph is born in 1889. Um, Bayard Rustin is born in 1912. Martin Luther King Jr. is born in uh, 1929. And I'm glad you mentioned John Lewis because he's born in 1940. So you see an entire continuum of activism, like every generation, they're roughly a generation apart. They're pushing and pushing forward. And a lot of these Randolph and Rustin and King and John Lewis are all going to be working together, but there's, so you can get, get a very real sense of like the torch being passed, you know? Uh, and so I think that that's at least worth mentioning is kind of how he's going to plug into the existing movement. And there's a lot of idea that, you know, civil rights sort of happened starting in the 60s, the 50s and 60s with Dr. King. And that's really not true. There's a whole continuum of activism that never goes away. And Rustin is one of those people that propels that activism through the Second World War. Rustin's an adult during the Second World War. Dr. King is a teenager, so he's not active yet. So Rustin is sort of part of this continuum that's uh, pushing 
pushing this uh, forward. Um, he is going to also get involved with another uh, mentor of Rustin's named A.J. Musty, uh, who he's a pacifist as well. Uh, and they are going to propose in 1941 a march on Washington. So that's 20 years before the the famous March right. on Washington that we will get to. But, you know, I think we tend to think about the March on Washington just sort of springing up out of Dr. King's mind in 1963. Mm -hmm. And that is not how it goes down at all. These three men are talking about a large scale March 1941, which if you have listened to any of our other podcasts, you might know we're right on the brink of of entering the Second World War. Yes. So this may not perhaps be like the most fortuitous time to have a march. Um, and of course, the one of the big reasons they want to have this march is they're concerned about segregation in the armed forces, which is very much the mm -hmm. policy of the United States military, and segregation in wartime employment, discrimination in wartime employment. You know, who can afford to be discriminatory when the whole idea is everybody's supposed to pitch in? However, as you can imagine, many government um, departments and many government contractors see no um, problem in continuing very prejudicial and discriminatory practices. So Rustin, Randolph, and Musty have a point. This is a big problem, and it's actually counterintuitive to a united war effort. But um, they're going to kind of go, OK, we want to do this march. Maybe we should talk to the president before we do anything. Um, these men in particular, as activists, I think, come from a generation of wanting to work with power as opposed mm -hmm. to sort of but up against it. So they meet with Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, they basically convince FDR to sign an executive order, Executive Order 8802, which basically does, on paper at least, ban discrimination in defense industries and federal agencies working on the war effort. So it doesn't um, desegregate the armed forces. That won't happen until Truman after World War II. Um, but it does at least hit on some of the things that they want. Rustin, this is not good enough for him. And again, if we sort of situate him as the younger generation to Randolph, Rustin's going, okay, we got one thing we wanted, but we didn't really get any of the other things we want. Randolph, though, is going to cancel the march uh, and basically sort of um, kibosh those efforts as a show of good faith to FDR to basically say, okay, you did this executive order for us. We, we, we appreciate you. We think you're going to work with us. So we're going to cancel it. This, I think, kind of um, illustrates, you know, where FDR sort of is. FDR has um, what's known as a black cabinet. FDR, certainly um, more so than some presidents before him, was willing to meet with black leaders and, and hear, their, um, hear their complaints, hear um, their problems. And he was willing to do some things, particularly through executive orders. Um, but he's not exactly a full-throated, supportive politician behind their policies. Randolph's willing to kind of take what he can get. Rustin's not. And this is by no means the first time in Rustin's career that he's going to find himself frustrated with other um, movement leaders where he sees sort of a lack of progress, half-realized goals. Um, and he's often going to find himself sort of butting heads and at odds with other members of these movements. And I think that's important to note. This is true of Rustin. It's true of King. It's true of Lewis. It's true of a lot of these important figures. We tend to think of them as monolithic. We tend to think of them as very homogenous in thought. And that's just not the reality. Um, you know, they come together and make things happen because that's what you have to do to move your cause forward. But more often than not, they disagree about the best ways to do it. And they disagree even about what the goals of these movements are. And so I think it's important to sort of keep that in mind. Um, Rustin remains really politically engaged even during World War II. Uh, he travels to California to protest against Japanese American internment, which is something FDR does that is really, really not great during the mm -hmm. Second World War. And Rustin 
Nathan calls him out on it. So after, um, you know, sort of uh, Randolph and Musty have sort of decided, okay, we're going to we're gonna say good job, FDR. Preston's like, absolutely not. He's locking up Americans um, just because they have Japanese uh, connections or family, and he goes out and he protests it. 1942, during the war, Rustin is going to protest segregated bus travel. He decides that he is going to get onto a bus and he's going to sit in the second row. And he's just not going to move. This is, again, 20 years before Rosa Parks. Um, he is going to get on a bus in Louisville, sit in that second row, and his intention is to make it all the way to Nashville without moving. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you can imagine. You've got drivers, you know, swapping in every six, eight hours, and every driver that gets on is like, could you move? You got to go to the back. You can't sit up here. Got to sit in the back. And he just politely refuses every single time. And then they get 13 miles north of Nashville, just outside of Nashville, and Russin is dragged off the bus. He is beaten. He's arrested. This will be the first of 24 arrests in his lifetime. But ultimately, they will release him without any charges. Um, you know, this is... It's kind of an amazing moment to me because he doesn't have a whole movement behind him when he decides to do this. This isn't meant to spark a larger boycott of buses, um, as we will see later with the Montgomery bus boycott. This is one man who says, this is an unjust law. I'm going to physically demonstrate against it. I'm going to put my body on the line. I'm going to put my safety on the line. And I'm going to do it because it's right. And mm -hmm. any awareness I can bring to it is good. Um, he very well could have been killed. Um, mm -hmm. The, the danger of this is should not be, uh, I think, understated. Um, and again, he's doing this without a without a group of people, right, to help support him. He does this alone, um, and I, I think it's a really remarkable um, illustration of his bravery and how willing he was to put himself on the line during during his lifetime. I think it's really remarkable to me that I mean, they if you're taking a bus from Louisville to Nashville and they stop like 13 miles outside of Nashville, it's because they knew they could do that there, that no one would notice what was happening. So this was, you know, like, it's not like they stopped 10 minutes out of the, their start in Louisville. There's a reason I would imagine that they stopped where they did because they knew that Rustin would get into some trouble there. And that's putting yourself and your body and your life on the line. It's also, I also think on a sort of more like a grander view, it sort of shows that there, we did not march in uniform step towards World War II. There was protest of what was going on. There were people that did not like FDR's policies and the, um, the segregation of the military and how people were treated there is a lot of that and for rustin to like go all the way out to california to protest japanese internment that's there's a lot going on there that's really kind of important uh and i think worth at least pausing on this is fully 15 20 years before rosa parks before the montgomery bus boycott before selma this is a big this is early stuff and it's this stuff never goes away it just we don't talk about it um, and this is, I think, a really pivotal moment that Rustin reflects on later in his life, this 1942 bus ride that he takes. Um, he would uh, compare this moment to his decision to be relatively open about his sexuality. Rustin, and we'll talk a little bit more about his sexuality throughout the episode, um, but Rustin lives fairly openly as a gay man. Um, this is something that, of course, he's not going to talk about necessarily to say the press, but people who knew him, his family, his friends, other people in the movement, knew that he was gay um, and he lives a relatively open life and later in his life becomes even more open. And he really talks about this moment as kind of a, a 
pivoting point for him. Um, from an, This is actually from an interview that he did with the Washington Blade, which is um, one of our local LGBTQ um, publications. Mm -hmm. He said, as I was going by the second seat to go to the rear, a white child reached out for the ring necktie I was wearing and pulled it, whereupon its mother said, don't touch uh, N-word. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> if I go and sit quietly at the back of that bus now, that child who was so innocent of race relations that it was going to play with me will have seen so many Blacks go to the back and sit down quietly that it's going to end up saying they like it back there. I've never seen anyone protest against it. I owe it to that child, not only to my own dignity, I owe it to that child that it should be educated to know that Blacks do not want to sit in the back and therefore I should get arrested, letting all these white people in the bus know that I do not accept that. It occurred to me shortly after that, that it was an absolute necessity for me to declare homosexuality, because if I didn't, I was a part of the prejudice. I was aiding and abetting the prejudice that was a part of the effort to destroy me. So for Rustin, he really sees these two things at an intersection. We talk about intersectionality a lot on this podcast, but um, especially I think for, for men like Rustin, right? This is, um, he's not just the one thing and he really sees the prejudicial treatment of him because of his race exactly mirrored with the prejudicial treatment of him as a gay man um one other thing during world war ii he's a very outspoken pacifist which is not a popular position to hold in the second world war the second world war is right. the good war right it's the one right. we're supposed to be fighting but he refuses to go and he's actually convicted of violation of the selective service act he is absolutely the right age to go fight um mm -hmm. and he just refuses and so he's imprisoned at lewisburg federal penitentiary for two years from 44 to 46 for being in violation of the selective service act now um we could probably get into the weeds of how many other people are in violation and don't spend time in a federal penitentiary, yep. but um, I think uh, it really speaks to how seriously he takes his pacifism, right? Um, that it's not just a sort of thing you say, right? I'm against war. He really, truly is opposed to engaging in wartime activity. Yes, he is. Um, he is, and this is, by, again, not by no means his last brush with the law. Uh, he is going to he in 1947 he gets he spends two years imprisoned so 1944 to 1946 so he is out of commission and imprisoned for two full years uh in 1947 he gets out and is right back at it he is gonna um with a man named george hauser organize the journey of reconciliation the first of the freedom rides so if you've heard of the freedom riders this is the first one of those he recruits a team of 14 men equally divided by race to ride in pairs through virginia north carolina tennessee in Kentucky. So he is sort of right back in the thick of things. Uh, he's going to uh, travels to India in 1948 to organize, to learn about nonviolent resistance. Uh, and so that's going to be, he's also goes, travels to Africa, Ghana and Nigeria uh, to sort of uh, meet with independence leaders there. He's going to um, support South African resistance, which is going to take take a long time to bear fruit with South Africa but there's a a lot of uh, activism and it's I think importantly like, he really does sort of put his money where his mouth is in terms of all of this nonviolence. he's going to learn directly from you know you can only imagine he must have gone and learned from Gandhi Gandhi was still alive in the late 40s and sort of learned all these techniques of nonviolent resistance that's later going to bear fruit uh, in the 50s and 60s in the civil rights movement I also think it really uh, showcases too that Rustin sees what's happening in the United States as part of a larger global and international fight for 
equality for all, right? Rights for all. Um, what is happening in the United States very specifically um, for Rustin is about civil rights, um, but he sees that it's part of this larger movement uh, across across the globe. And he really never loses sight of sort of the international um, impact and influence um, that, that civil rights leaders in the United States can have, how much it can inspire and how much it can connect to what was happening in other parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1953, he is arrested again this time specifically for sexual activity. Um, he's originally charged with vagrancy and lewd conduct. He is going to plead guilty uh, to a single lesser charge of sex perversion. Um, this is, I think, a pretty, again, brave and bold choice to um, plead down and take a guilty plea, because uh, this is something that is going to be on his record forever. This is mm -hmm. something that is going to be very easy for his enemies to latch on to, which they will. This is oh, something yeah. the press will never forget. And anytime Rustin comes up in the media, this arrest comes up again. Um, so it's, again, I think a really remarkable thing that he's willing to say, yes, this law is discriminatory and it's wrong, but I, I will take the 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 charge i'll take it and this is it's worth mentioning important to mention i think he gets arrested for a consensual act so this is not this is he's in public in a car and he gets arrested and so it is a, a man of rustin savvy does this perhaps not to get arrested but at least knowing that that's a possibility that he might like there are ways to be discreet about this by this time he is in his 30s and presumably there are there have been ways around this for a long time for him him doing this in public in california in a car knowing that it's sort of illegal i would imagine is to bring sort of a knowing that he's going to get arrested this is this is not uh, an unforeseen consequence for him um would be my guess he's open about his sexuality with his friends and his you know, it, colleagues, he's not, he's going to play more of a backseat role in sort of the national spotlight. But in terms of his personal life, there, he's open about this. So my guess is that this is something that he does knowing that it's possible he will get arrested and sort of wanting to shed a light on some of these practices that are not fair. Um, and this influences his, um, his role in the movement. Literally, he there's some of his like his early met mentor Musty is going to try to sort of convert him from being gay back to being straight, which is going to fray their relationship for very like understandable and terrible. Also, not how that works. <laughs> also, not how that works, and that's really terrible. Um, and this is why Rustin does a lot of uncredited work. Why he's a lot in the background because he knows that his sexuality could present an issue uh, on the national stage, and it's also going to be repeatedly brought up to try to stop his activism. Senator Strom Thurmond is going to literally, on the floor of the United States Senate, call out Rustin in particular, and introduce this arrest, this particular arrest in 1953, into the record to humiliate him, yeah. to embarrass the movement, to set civil rights backward, um, and to you know paint them all as degenerates or whatever word, um, terrible word Senator Thurman wants to um, use. And so this is um, used to try to stop him, and he refuses to allow it. He eventually will be pardoned in 2020. Uh, from this um, charge literally just two years ago so if you're listening to at the time we recorded this anyway it has been not even two full years since he was pardoned posthumously of yes. this charge uh, local um 
uh, and state legislatures in uh, California pressured uh, Governor Newsom to to issue this pardon. Um, yes. Rightfully so, but I think many, many years after the fact <laughs> and many, yes. many years after we've already started sort of, I think, evaluating Rustin. Um, I, yeah, I, I think exactly what you said is is spot on. It's an incredibly brave thing he does, but it is going to become in many ways sort of this weight on him um, and it will be thrown back at him constantly, this particular arrest, this charge, mm -hmm. anytime he tries to do anything. And the fact that he doesn't let that stop him in any real way is remarkable, but I think it does illustrate um, one of the reasons why for a long time, right, Rustin's a background player. He's he's in mm -hmm. the backseat. Um, there are many times when he is essentially doing all the work, but he can't be the chairman, the leader. He has to resign several positions after this arrest um, because of what it might do for the organizations he's involved with. And so he does have to sort of step back. But I think the fact that he's willing to, to let this be a public charge says a lot about what he's trying to do and about who he is. And he will spend 60 days in jail. Um, he's going to spend a lot of time in jail resting in his lifetime. Uh, this brings us, though, to Rustin and Martin Luther King Jr. So a couple years later, 1956, King is going to um, write to Rustin and ask him to um, come and meet with him and eventually to advise him. King specifically wants to better understand the Gandhian tactics of protests and demonstration. He's very interested in what Rustin has learned in his time traveling abroad. Um, King is prepping for the Montgomery bus boycott. And so this is where he wants Rustin's advice. And as you sort of illustrated, um, sometimes we think of Rustin and King, I think, as full contemporaries, but there's a good um, sort of 10, 10 15, 15 years, years and eight, yeah. 15 years between them. And so Rustin really is an advisor and a mentor to King, not the other way around. And it's I think also like to think, think of, about it. We also think of King as much older than he was. And he was so incredibly young. Truly. He was so incredibly young. He was only 39 when he died. So, and that's 1968. So this is 1955. He's 13 years younger. So he's in his 20s. Like, that astounds me. And he looks kind of older. Like all those black and white photos, like people look older than they probably were. They um, all dressed but, up all the time. I know. And he always <laughs> looks so, you know, put together. It's very nice. But he and King, kind of, he's more of an, an, a mentor to King and he advises King and it seems like a little, they kind of clash. Like he would, he will call King out for his said that, you know, he talks about the quote that Rustin's having. Rustin gives this quote much later. He says, I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. In other words, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his home to be protected by guns. And so there's a couple of things going on in that quote, and I want to highlight both of them. One of them is that he's basically suggesting that it was his idea of nonviolence that he kind of, that King kind of took and ran with, um, which I don't think is 100% untrue. Like there, I think is definitely a melding there uh, that yeah. happened. And the other thing that he's That's talking it's about- specifically why King seeks out Rustin is he wants yes. to, wants to better understand if these can be effective and how would these techniques work and will they get the end result King wants? Right. And knowing that Rustin has, you know, this passive history, knowing that he's been to India and sort of studied all of these things, I think that that was the direction King wanted to go. And he's going to ask Rustin for help in making it there. And the other part of that quote that I want to mention is he calls out King for protecting his home and his children with guns. And eventually King listens to him and gives up the armed protection. And I gotta say, like, I had little kids. 
I would, wouldn't, you know, and if you're as public about your activism as King very much was, I would be nervous not having my children in my home under some protection because it is very clear that, I mean, we know what happened to King eventually. Like, it is very clear that they will not stop uh, from going after his children. I would, that's a, a leap of faith to take, um, I think, to sort of really put your, um, your life and the life of your family on the line in terms of your nonviolent beliefs. I think that's really something. Um, I think it also speaks to Rustin's bona fides. Rustin, mm -hmm. his pacifism extends to even if I am attacked, I am not going to carry a weapon. I am not going to kill or hurt somebody, even if it's in self-defense. And who who am I to say where everyone's personal uh, feelings about safety should be? But I think it certainly speaks to how seriously Rustin takes his pacifism, how seriously he takes his ideas of nonviolent protest mm -hmm. that Rustin himself too does not use armed protection. He does not carry a weapon at any point in his lifetime. Uh, and again, this is a man who frequently puts himself in harm's way. Mm -hmm. um, and he encourages King to follow that. Um, that sort of model, which certainly um, is a choice. Yeah. <laughs> a choice yeah. to there make, um, especially as King becomes one of the most visible, the most visible member of this movement. Right. Um, the two of them um, become very close. Um, they are going to become uh, very close um, colleagues and close um, working together. Uh, 57, 1957, they were going to begin organizing the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, so the SCLC, and they begin planning a march. So here we are, still not quite 1963, but they're starting to plan a march. Yes. As you can imagine, this is the late 1950s. There's a lot of tension around the idea of a big civil rights demonstration, and so um, one black congressman who is angry about the political timing of the march threatens to leak rumors of a fake affair between King and Rustin to the press. Yes. And this is something that will dog King and Rustin's relationship, friendship, um, working relationship. There will constantly be these false rumors that they had an affair. Absolutely not true, not based in any yes. reality. King did have affairs. Oh, uh, yeah. None of them were with Rustin. Right. None of them were with men, with as men. far as we can yeah. tell. <laughs> um, but you can imagine, right, this sort of thing uh, is going to come up a lot um, because of Rustin's sexuality. This is an easy, dirty trick that people can play. And King does. King will will cancel this proposed march. And Rustin leaves the SCLC. Um, so it's like, all right, the, the, you know, I'm not welcome here either. Off I go. But we're a little bit closer now. The March on Washington is going to happen. And in 1962, it's a seed that's planted by A. Philip Randolph. It's really um, A. Philip Randolph, who's still around, still kicking in 62. A. Philip Randolph, by the way, is fascinating. We should talk yeah. a lot about him. He, at some point, he is um, a, a union activist. And he gets involved in a couple different unions. He's president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is the first sort of African-American union to really make itself known due to his leadership on the national stage. A. Philip Randolph is absolutely fascinating. He's really vital uh, to this movement, to linking the struggle for um, uh, uh, civil rights to the struggle for the dignity of work. There's a reason that the March on Washington is called, and I make this point on every tour I give the Lincoln Memorial, it is called the March for Jobs and Freedom. Because they know that your economic well-being and your civil rights are ultimately completely tied together. And so that's the influence of Randolph and of Rustin and their background as socialists, their background as labor organizers. 
Well, and Rustin is very much influenced by Randolph's uh, success in the labor um, space and mm -hmm. his willingness to, or, you know, the, his perspective of how important economic freedom is, how important the, the right and dignity of work is. And Rustin is going to take and absorb all of that and will move in that labor space as well. And that's very much to Randolph's credit. Randolph also lives 90 years. And I think about what he sees from the 1880s to the 1970s what he lives through, what he experiences, we should do a, a, a podcast on Randolph. So anyway, Randolph, who for 20 years has wanted to do some kind of march, mm -hmm. starts to plan very seriously a march to take place in 1963 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. He sees Rustin as the most logical choice to organize this march. Mm -hmm. Rustin has extensive experience at this point in protesting marching, um, organizing. He is connected to everybody in the movement. He's connected to different generations of this movement. He's connected to a lot of labor organizations, a lot of civil rights organizations, justice organizations. It, he's got it. He's the guy. However, given Rustin's controversies, given um, this sort of constant sort of uh, scrutiny of his life, um, Randolph ultimately agrees to be the director of this march because there is concern that if Rustin is the director, it's gonna do nothing but drag down yes. what they're trying to do. They'll be mired in bad publicity. So Rustin is the deputy, but I wanna be exceptionally clear here. Rustin does really all the core work. Yes. He is the person making this march happen. And Randolph, to his credit, when Strom Thurmond gets onto the floor of the Senate and reads into the record this absolute, just a character attack on Rustin, Randolph holds a press conference following and defends Rustin to the press. He defends Rustin to the American people. And that's, that to me is a, just another illustration of the incredible man that A. Philip Randolph was, that he, he got out there and was like, you know, R Rustin is a, he gets out there to defend him and defend R Rustin's character. And Strom Thurmond does not let up and is terrible about this. He, there's a picture of Rustin and King where one of them has their arm around the other one. And Strom Thurmond, it's a, it, Strom Thurmond uses this as a suggestive pose to suggest that they're involved in some way. He's going to, on the floor of the United States Senate, call Rustin a pervert and a draft dodger, which are gross mischaracterizations and frankly wrong about a lot of things and terrible. And it just is really, <sighs> Strom Thurmond sucks. I'm sorry, he does. That's our very unbiased, objective, historical right. thing. Objective. But also, Thurman's terrible, and that just yeah. is the reality. Um, as as you, you noted, and as I also note on my tours, Rustin and Randolph's vision for this is very much a focus on economic inequality, segregation and discrimination in work um, and in economic opportunities, right, to get loans, to get all the things that you, you sort of need, right, to build a solid um, life. They ultimately kind of compromise on this vision so they can bring in more supporting civil rights groups by adding the and freedom to the end. So, mm -hmm. so much of what we think about about the March on Washington today as I think more wrapped up in the civil rights ideals, but it really is a labor march first and foremost, and that's the driving force behind what they're trying to build. Mm -hmm. um, Rustin is at every turn pivotal to this march's yes. success. He oversees a team of 200 activists who are gonna make this march happen to bring it to life. One of his chief aides, he had two women who were serving directly underneath him. One of them, Eleanor Holmes Norton, 
the delegate uh, for the District of Columbia. Um, those who may not know Eleonora Holmes Norton's backstory or may only know her as serving as delegate today has an exceptionally long history in the civil rights movement and has very much been an on the ground um, organizer and activist uh, through a, a good portion of her life. And she served directly under Rustin for this mm -hmm. march. So a little Yay. EHN shout out. Um, he is going to be really aware of the potential for violence. He's very aware of the potential for um, problems to occur, not even within the march, but from external forces. So he does something that I think is really smart. He trains off-duty police officers to serve as marshals. He prepares hundreds of bus captains to direct traffic and help make sure that there are safe evacuation routes and safe routes to and from the march. And he's going to schedule all of the podium speakers, really trying to build what he sees as a balance between all the different movements and all the different um, kind of personalities and passions um, to kind of make sure that nothing gets too incendiary, nothing um, is put into the program that's going to cause an issue. Um, he's going to ultimately recruit 4,000 volunteers to keep this protest safe and nonviolent, which is a remarkable thing to do now. Yes. I can't even imagine trying to do this in 62 and 63 when you don't have the internet. Yep. You've got to be calling people, writing people. And I want to like pause on this moment for a minute for in two ways. First of all, Rustin has learned from other uh, marches in Washington, namely probably the Women's March in 1913, that if you don't have police presence, if the police are not really trained for this, you could have violence. That's what happens in 1913. And so he wants to make sure that there is sort of an order to what's happening. He knows there's going to be a lot of people. And he also knows that if there's a problem it will derail everything they're trying to do. The press will focus on the problem and not the march. And so it is a remarkable testament to his organization that almost 300,000 people show up on the National Mall that day and it is peaceful, it is organized, they all get home, there's some trash that people leave because that's a lot of people, but otherwise it is a very, it's a hot, sticky gross august day but everyone has calm and they have an order to things and there's directing traffic and so that's a real testament to i think how much how seriously he takes this and the level of organization that he's able to bring to this and i mean you know they have to do it themselves because the fbi and the justice department refuse to provide mm -hmm. any sort of preventative guards or any sort of support um they weren't going to get it from the government so they had to use private you know they had to do it themselves president kennedy's advance man is on site and he's there with the power to cut the sound system of the public address system yeah. if needed so Certainly people smarter and, and more more studied than I can can speak to the places to which this march, um, particularly when you look at the speakers, maybe um, doesn't doesn't always hit what we think it should or, or isn't um, perhaps addressing all of the issues of 1963. But they're also operating under this incredible microscope. Every move they're making, they have the FBI. They have Kennedy's White House. They have Congress breathing down their necks. And Rustin is able to navigate, I think, an exceptionally tricky set of situations to create a, a very powerful and important march, one that we today constantly point to as a perfect example, right, of nonviolent, mm -hmm. peaceful protests. And it is remarkable to me today how they orchestrated the logistics of it. It's really something. 
Um, and I like to mention that like the sound system, because like he knew a sound system was really important and like they needed to have a sound system to keep people organized and calm and control. You need to be able to convey information. Mm -hmm. And the night before the march, their sound system was sabotaged. Wow. And like they managed to get it all together, but I'm like, uh, and and make it all work. But I'm like, that's like the kind of obstacles they were up against. Yeah, was not just the difficulty of doing this, but at every turn you had people trying to undercut you, and sabotage you, and people who want to see you fail. And some yeah. of those people are incredibly powerful people. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I could go on and on about this. Anyway, um, I will say too, the march was originally planned not for the Lincoln Memorial, even though it was inspired by the centennial mm -hmm. of the Emancipation Proclamation. The original plan was to march on the Capitol. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, Rustin and Randolph are kind of being told, look, Congress is real nervous about this. They don't like yeah. the idea of you guys up near their building. What if something goes wrong? Uh, and they're basically pressured to move because it will seem less threatening to the members of Congress if this mob is at the Lincoln no Memorial. I have no words to express how upset I am right now. <laughs> and honestly, it's kind of, it's one of those things where they pressure to move and then the visual of yes. these civil rights speakers in the shadow of Lincoln and, you know, the way in which now, you know, we consider the Lincoln Memorial the prime space for these First Amendment demonstrations. Um, it's almost like they, you know, you you have just spited yourself um, yeah. because now in many ways the Lincoln Memorial holds a different meaning um, yeah. for protests today than um, the Capitol does. Uh, Rustin is part of the official program of the March on Washington, um, I will say. So there are 10 um, sort of official designated speakers. He plans the whole program and he does include himself. And I love the role that he gives himself, which is after King's speech, uh, he and Randolph will come out and he, Rustin, is um, given the, the task of reading the March's official demands, which I love. And the, this this is a long march. We often think of like, you know, just King's speech, but there's like 18 bullet points on this program. They have a prayer and they have, a, you know, they recite demands and they have the whole thing. Like there's the, it is an 18 point program, 10 official speakers of which King is the 10th and the last. So people by that time had been there all day. This is not like just a one speech and done. Like this is a long, um, and for all of y'all who aren't familiar with our DC ways, this is August 28th. It is hot and there is no shade at the Lincoln Memorial. So they are all in the sun. Um, and Rustin gives the, reads the official demands. It is also important to note they don't have any women speaking. I would just like to say that. There's no women speaking at the march. Not in any official capacity. Um, this is not something that Rustin um, believes by any means. It's a reflection of, I think, the complicated and uh, diverting views. Um, he does insist that they add a tribute to Negro women fights for freedom into the program. So he does is the one who's pushing for inclusion of women in any way. But it's really we've touched on this in past episodes. It's really minute. Um, it's a few brief words given by a young woman named Daisy Bates, who is about to get a statue in the Capitol. So Arkansas Yay. is redoing their two Capitol statues. One is going to be Johnny Cash, um, which is awesome. The other is going to be Daisy Bates, which is even more awesome. Um, they just, Arkansas, just like two weeks ago, um, 
unveiled the proposed design and it's been sent to be approved um, by the committee that does such things in Congress. So um, hopefully um, in the future, when her statue is unveiled, we can do an episode on Daisy Bates and talk a little more in depth about her life. We should do a whole pod on the march at some point. And we should also do a whole pod and talk about the statues in the Capitol, because I feel like that's something that is fascinating and not a lot of people understand as well. But otherwise... After the march, he immediately goes to New York City and coordinates a citywide boycott of public schools, a bus boycott that would lead to um, attempts to ban him anytime he spoke for a school. Um, he would they, Anytime he tries to speak after this, they will try to ban him because they... Yeah, anytime he's supposed to go to a college, and he's doing things, it's, yeah. oh, well, no, if he comes, it's going to be, you know, he's coming to cause trouble. And yes. school desegregation or school integration is one of Rustin's really key points. It's one of the demands of the March on Washington. It's one that Rustin really believed in, that education had to be fully integrated to be successful. Um, and so he really um, protests in the education space a lot mm -hmm. in his lifetime. And he's going to continue to focus on jobs and equality, um, inequality. Foc uh, he focuses on the civil rights movement. He wants to build stronger ties with labor and uh, unions. Um, he, critics will, as he ages, accuse him of going soft uh, and becoming more conservative and less radical. Um, he's going to speak out against the Black Power movement sort of later on in the 60s. And by this time, he is not a young man. He is in his 50s at this point. Um, and he, he remains a lifelong socialist. And he sort of transitions throughout the 70s into the 80s and towards the end of his life into gay activism. Uh, and so that's going to be, again, right in line with the times. This is a real, the 70s are a real sort of watershed moment for the development of gay activism. Uh, he is going to testify in 1986, not long before his death, uh, about uh, New York's gay rights bill. He gives a speech that um, the new N-word are gays um, and that the question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable group in mind, which is uh, really fascinating. And it must have been interesting to me by the time the sort of AIDS epidemic hits New York. That's where he lives at this point. And he's been in a longtime partnership uh, and is elderly. He's not he's in his 70s uh, in the 80s. And so he's not directly affected. I mean, he's watching his community uh, be affected by AIDS. So it must have been interesting to see see the sort of um the early years of the AIDS crisis is fascinating to me uh but he um it must have been interesting sort of how he interacted in that space um his sexuality is complicated as I guess everyone's is but he really um he says he never came out of the closet voluntarily that circumstances forced him out and that he had no problem being publicly identified as homosexual uh, but he says quote it would be dishonest of me to present myself as one who was in the forefront of the struggle for gay rights I fundamentally consider sexual orientation to be a private matter as such it has not been a factor which has greatly influenced my role as an activist but his partner, who's considerably younger, uh, is going to push him to get more involved in the gay rights movement towards the end of his life. And ultimately, he wants to extend legal protections to his partner. They want a, what we would now call a domestic partnership. That is not marriage. Or a marriage, really. But yeah, you know. yes, obviously marriage would be ideal, but that is off the table. A domestic partnership is off the table. And so ultimately, Rustin is going to adopt his partner. 
uh, Walter Nagel. Uh, Nagel's mother has to give up, like has to sign a paper giving up rights to him. Um, it's not an uncommon technique in those years before same-sex marriage is legal, before there are domestic partnerships. Uh, but Bayard Rustin will ultimately adopt legally, make his uh, partner his legal child. Um, and in 1987, he dies on August 24th, 24th, sorry, um, 24 years after the march, almost to the day, uh, of a perforated appendix. So, you know, it's sort of um, incredible. He lives a, a quite a long life, um, certainly not long enough, but um, what he sort of experiences and lives through, you know, 1912 to 1987, um, you know, he lives long enough to see the fruits of much of his labor sort of come forth, right? He sees incredible advances in civil rights, legal protections, um, incredible advances in the labor movement and the, the sort of, um, I think, uh, embrace in the labor movement of civil rights in many ways. Um, and yet, right, he also lives long enough to um, kind of find himself kind of bucking against some of the system. I think in particular, his resistance and sort of opposition to a lot of the black power movement is fascinating. He would actually hold um, a series of debates against uh, or uh, mm -hmm. where he would go up against Malcolm X and they would debate and talk about sort of the the pros and cons of using different techniques to uh, achieve change. Uh, we'll include in the show notes a couple video clips of him debating with Malcolm X because it's just fascinating stuff. Um, there's sort of, I think, as you touched on, kind of a pushing of Rustin as a more conservative figure as he ages, um, because he he uh, found himself sort of at odds with a lot of black power movement. But he's not conservative the way we think of it today, right? He is a socialist through and through. He never um, abandoned sort of these socialist beliefs. Um, he uh, very much uh, sees a class as as key an element to fight for as race. And I think that's part of the reason um, that his legacy gets a little complicated in the 80s and 90s, because yep. Rustin often saw himself as a worker first. He saw the movement as a socioeconomic movement, uh, not simply clearly about race. Um, and that I think um, complicates, can co complicate things and did complicate things when it came to his legacy immediately following his death. Um, that said, I do think in sort of the, the 21st century and the last sort of 15 years or so, there's been kind of a reassessment of Rustin. There's been a lot of really good um, writing and research done. Uh, in 2013, um, Rustin was uh, presented uh, posthumously with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So President Obama uh, awards him that Medal of Freedom. It's given to Walter Nagel, who had been his partner for sort of the last 10, 12 years of his life. Um, uh, there was a documentary that came out even 10 years before that called Brother Outsider, which is really excellent. Uh, it really looks at Rustin's life and work, and I think is really part of what really kind of kicks off some of that resurgence in examining um, Rustin. Um, there's been a lot of uh, more recent commentary uh, about Rustin in the last two or three years. Um, I encourage you to check out our show notes, but if you do your own Googling, I definitely caution against uh, a lot of people take Rustin, I think, out of context. Um, and mm -hmm. it's easy to cherry pick quotes or cherry pick things that were said about Rustin um, to make sure you're looking at things that are sort of uh, full bodied. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more conversation about Rustin coming soon because the Obamas who have a deal with Netflix are producing a biopic currently 
about mm-hmm. Rustin. They were in uh, DC briefly filming uh, last fall. Um, they've been in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh filming. So they're doing a lot of filming in Pennsylvania. So if you live in those areas, you might see them filming. Uh, it's going to star one of my all-time favorite working actors right now, Coleman Domingo. He's playing Rustin, which is super exciting. Um, and I think it's going to be really good. It's directed by George C. Wolf, who has done incredible work with I think bringing black history to the stage and the screen. So I think it's going to be really good. And maybe we'll do a little mini episode after it comes out and look at the biopic uh, compared to to this episode. Um, But I I keep your eyes out for that. Um, I get my guess is it'll drop probably late 2022. Maybe in August would be a very smart time to release it. But um, my guess is it'll come sometime before the end of the year. So it'll be in contention for awards. but there's a lot of um, cachet, a lot of good um, talent behind and in front of the camera with this. So I think that um, when this comes out, we're gonna see even more kind of uh, public conversation about Rustin. Good, awesome, I'm excited. I've been the, I've seen like clips and stuff on the internets about the upcoming biopic and it's going to be good. Yeah, obviously um, when you have the Obamas attached to a project, it gets a lot of attention. Sure. Um, yeah, but I also, you know, I think uh, that's a good that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just you. That's just the tip of the list. Usually I like to dig into how someone's represented in movies and films and stuff. Rustin actually pops up a lot, um, often as a smaller role, but a lot of um, films, movies, TV series, things that have touched on um, this era usually include Rustin in some way. But I'm excited for him to take a more kind of leading role, center role, um, because he has he's been in the back backstage backseat for so long. Um, I'm really excited um, to see something a little bit more, more yes. thorough and more centered on Rustin and his legacy. So we will end that here. Again, I'm just going to recommend the show notes um, with some good links um, and some good videos um, as well on Rustin. Um, this was something that I, a topic I've wanted to talk about for a while, a person I wanted to talk about. I really love, Rebecca, the way you sort of positioned Rustin in this continuum, because we do really think about not just civil rights, we think about um, the women's movement this way too, as sort of like, well, it happens in this era, and then nothing Mm -hmm. happened for 40 years. And then here's the next wave of it. And it's like, that's not at all how these movements exist. It's very much links in a chain. It's very much a continuum. And they're influencing each other. They're pushing each other. um, And they're diverting from each other. Not Mm -hmm. every one of these members of these movements think the same way or feel the same way or are looking for the same result and or it's agree. important to acknowledge that yeah 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 oh yeah these are diverse and that's you know we see this in our present day too like all you need to do is look on twitter and see exactly who's pushing what and where and how the president should do x and y and this is the same sort of idea like there's never a clear agreement on how to move forward just that we should keep moving in some direction and so it's it's kind of comforting in a way that like progress is slow, <laughs> but it's there. And so I feel like that's uh, an important, like Rustin is one of those people behind the scenes who kind of pushes and pushes and pushes and doesn't get a lot of the credit, uh, partly for his own reasons. But I think um, I'm glad to see he's getting a reconsideration. 
Absolutely. So this was um, a great talk. This was wonderful. Um, again, check out the show notes. Thank you always, always, always to our patrons. Thank you to all our listeners. Um, when you guys um, shout us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we love it. Thank you to everyone who's listening to us, um, everyone who's recommending us to their friends. We just really, really appreciate it. If you um, are interested in seeing us in person, check out dcbyfoot.com. We've got our spring tour schedule up. We've got some really fun special tours happening in February. Um, we've got tours that are talking about Black history and women's history on mm -hmm. every single tour. So you're going to get that if you're out in the field with us. Um, you can always email us tourguidetellall at gmail.com and you can pitch the pod. We've got a couple topics coming up that are pitches. So um, we take yes. your pitches very seriously. So don't be afraid to send us ideas. Um, sometimes we get um, mired down in all the ideas we have that your pitches are very helpful in helping us focus. <laughs> yes, it really is helping us focus because if we say something that we want to do and then you guys listen and say, yeah, I'd really like to hear that, we put it on the schedule. So let's let's do this. Um, thanks everybody for coming along. Come back for Women's History Month next uh, in March. And yeah, thanks everybody. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.